Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he is one of Canada's most successful track and field athletes, competing in one of the most grueling disciplines. Race walker Evan Dunphy joins me to talk about his sport, his medals, and his growing number of fourth place finishes. We continue our back to school series with a dive into how artificial intelligence and chatbots, such as ChatGPT, you may have heard of that one, are changing the classroom. Should they be embraced or excluded? or both. A Harvard educator joins me to talk about that. Conservative MP and foreign affairs critic Michael Chong has been a vocal critic of Beijing's human rights record and its record of interference and intimidation tactics in democracies such as Canada, something he's faced firsthand. Now he's off to Washington to share his thoughts with the U.S. Congressional Committee, and he's given us a preview. But first, the Bank of Canada is holding interest rates at 5%, deciding to pause hikes for now. It comes with a lot of politics swirling around the central bank these days. Three premier including BC's and Ontario's, wrote letters to the Bank of Canada governor asking that rates not rise again. And today, the finance minister, Chrystia Freeland, called the decision, quote, a welcome relief for Canadians. So are politicians sticking their nose into bank affairs? And is that a slippery slope? Speaking of money, let's start in Ottawa today because all eyes were on the Bank of Canada this morning to see what it would do with interest rates, right? They were at 5% coming in. Opinion was divided on whether they would go up again to 5.2, another quarter point to 5.25. That's where the UK is right now. That's where the US is right now. But not us. Uh, The Bank of Canada paused today. They left the rate unchanged at 5%. Uh, They said in a statement accompanying the announcement that they were prepared to increase interest rates further if need be because the economy remains. uh, They're still concerned about the persistence of inflationary pressures. Our inflation rate went up again in July to 3.3% from 2.8% in June. And... um, You know, the one thing that's been interesting about this one, as well as just the announcement itself and what it means and why they made that decision, is all the politics surrounding it. You may have noticed over the past few weeks, uh, the premiers of B.C., Ontario and Newfoundland and Labrador all sent letters to the Bank of Canada asking them to hold rates. And as a rule, politicians do not get involved. This is an independent uh, body, the Bank of Canada, and normally politicians stay out of the way. They keep their nose out of Bank of Canada business, but not now, since affordability seems to become the issue that everyone needs to play catch up on, or at least take very seriously. It feels like politicians everywhere are jumping into this. Here's Jagmeet Singh today. It's time for Justin Trudeau, whose government sets the mandate for the Bank of Canada to clearly give the message that policies that hurt workers and hurt families are wrong. Right, but wrong. You don't want it. That's not the point of the Bank of Canada. Even Christia Freeland today seemed to drift into the political, uh, calling the move to hold rates good news for Canadians. The Bank of Canada's decision to maintain its overnight interest rate is welcome relief for Canadians. As finance minister, I fully respect the independence of the Bank of Canada as it delivers on its mandate to return inflation to target, which will support a return to the steady growth and stable prices, which were the hallmarks of the pre-COVID Canadian economy. 
Right. Welcome relief. That's kind of the, that's the politics in there. Um, to help us with this is Christopher Reagan. He's the founding director of McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy. He also served as a special advisor to, to the governor of the Bank of Canada about 20 years ago. He joins me now. Christopher, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. Nice to be here. We had uh, an economist, uh, deputy chief economist of uh, CIBC on last week talking about this, and they didn't really know what to expect today. Uh, but here we are. Uh, they held Bank of Canada's held rates steady at 5%. Uh, what do you make of the decision and the reasoning behind the decision? Well, first of all, let me just say that it's, you know, it's very rarely a slam dunk to figure out what the Bank of Canada is going to do. Uh, you know, they are looking at a large number of pieces of data they're kind of putting it all together. They're trying to figure out exactly what's going on and more to the point, what will be likely to happen over the next year or so. Now, today's decision to hold the uh, the, the the policy rate or the, the, the target for the overnight rate, you know, I guess some people were surprised, some people were not. You know, my reading of what the bank has decided is that, number one, the economy is still running pretty hot. And, you know, in the statement, they say that. And uh, I think they still believe that there's a risk that inflation will continue. But, you know, they've made a, a number of rate increases over the past year or so. And they know that those rate increases take a while before they really start to take effect on slowing down the economy and then slowing down inflation. So at some point, I think it was it was kind of natural to expect that the bank would take a pause and see what happened. Uh, so it looks like they've decided to take the pause now. It could have been next time. It could have been last time. But it was going to happen somewhere around here. Right. Uh, but the real, the real proof, I suppose, of whether the bank has done the right thing, we won't know for 18 or 24 months. You, you can only, you know, only with hindsight can you know that, the, that any central bank has really done the right thing at any particular point. And when you look at this, I mean, I was in looking at the data, you mentioned the economy is still running hot, inflation still a concern. It felt like they could have gone either way today. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it's it's finding that balance clearly is the tough thing here is trying to figure out when to, if you're going to hit the brakes or hit pause, when to hit pause, keeping in mind that this still has, uh, as you pointed out, you know, 18 months, two years to play out. Well, so it's not just when to hit a pause, Ben, but for how long do you pause? Right. Inflation is still above target. Uh, core inflation, so the which is, a, I think, a better indication of sort of the underlying demand and supply imbalance in the economy is still above 2%. The latest GDP data suggests that the economy is starting to slow down. The labor market is still pretty tight. Wage growth is still pretty high. So as is usually the case, not all of the indicators are pointing in the right direction or in the same direction, sorry. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, you know, what they do six weeks from now, their next time out, you know, do they continue the pause? I, I'd be very surprised if they lowered the rates. I think something would have to, something very dramatic would have to happen for them to actually kind of turn around and start rate increases. But if things didn't slow down, and if some important indicators actually suggested that the, that the heat was still really on, I think they could still continue rate increases. And, and you pointed this out already because I remember having done many of these at this point because, you know, once they started raising rates back in March of 2022, and then we had sort of 10 rate hikes in a row, and then we've had more since we've paid attention to almost each and every one of these. At one point, not that long ago, people were sort of predicting, hey, wait a second, maybe things will start to, maybe rates will start to come down now. That really looks like it's off the table, at least for 2023. 
when people were saying a few months ago, because I think you're quite right, that people were saying, oh, well, maybe rates will fall pretty soon. My view at that point was, no, that would be very unusual, right? The bank had embarked on this rate increasing cycle, and it would be something very dramatic, it seems to me, would have to happen for them to then right away start going down again, right? It, much, much more predictable that they would just take a pause, hang out for six weeks or another six weeks or another six weeks and see how the economy is evolving. Yeah. And, and just to put this in, into perspective, because clearly we watch what other central banks are doing as well. Um, both the UK, I believe, and the US are at 5.25 now. So the same set of circumstances are leading banks to do to do similar things. And yet the UK and the US is, is still a little bit higher than us right now. And there's still talk of, of more rate hikes in those places. So these economies, uh, I would say the central banks are following very similar logic. I mean, the models of their economies that they use are very similar. The economic circumstances are similar, but not identical. Um, and so you can have the policy interest rate that's at slightly different different levels in different, different uh, countries, even though they're roughly doing the same thing, right? So I don't think we should read too much into the fact that our uh, policy t- uh, target for the central bank, um, you know, is five percent. In someplace else, it's five point two five. You know, at other times we were higher than them uh, because our our economies are in slightly different situations. Even though, kind of broadly speaking, we've been facing the same inflationary forces over the past two or three years. Christopher Reagan is founding director of McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy. We're talking about the Bank of Canada today, holding uh, its uh, policy rate at 5%. That was not uh, wholly expected or unexpected, but it suggests, obviously, a temporary pause. At least they open the door to maybe more rates, uh, rate hikes in the not-too-distant future, but also uh, no rate drops anytime soon. Um, you've been watch. You watch this space very, very closely, Christopher. When, tell me a bit about these letters from premiers. And it feels like this one got more political than usual. And I guess it's because over the course of the summer, uh, affordability certainly has become the top issue uh, for politicians and voters alike. Well, you know, inflation, of course, has been an issue in the past few years, but also house price affordability or unaffordability has been a headline issue, and rightly so, over the past year. And frankly, it should have been a a big issue for several years before that. When the Bank of Canada raises interest rates, it tends to raise mortgage rates. I understand the politics of why that is unpopular, but it's worth saying that that's exactly what monetary policy is supposed to do, okay? That is how monetary policy deals with high inflation. When they're trying to bring down inflation, what you're trying to do is slow down the economy. Uh, And in particular, you're trying to slow down aggregate demand. And in particular, the interest sensitive, the interest rate sensitive components of aggregate demand. And guess which part is the most interest rate sensitive? That is the housing sector. So it should not be a surprise that when the central bank raises interest rates, then people that are thinking about buying homes or people that are paying mortgages, or for that matter, people that are paying on any kind of loan with a variable interest rate, they're not very happy. The letters that you made reference to, so none of that was new, by the way, right? But the letters from the premiers and the statement from the finance minister were unusual. Usually, Canadian politicians, frankly, have the good sense to not try to politicize the process of the making of monetary policy. Over the years, and I mean, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, 
we in Canada and other countries have learned that there are real advantages if you take the politics out of central banking. What we learned, to, to, to put this in a nutshell, what we learned is that when central banks were closely connected to the governments that owned them, and getting and you get the politics involved in the making of of monetary policy we ended up with a lot of pressure being put on central banks to be very expansionary just before an election right uh, for obvious reasons and we ended up with an inflation bias in 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 many economies across many years and so what we discovered through um through that experience was that if we could make central banks operationally independent, not completely independent from their governments, but just on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, and we could take the politics out of it, then we could get better monetary policy making. And in particular, we could actually maintain lower and more stable inflation. It just always strikes me how tough it must be for politicians not to jump into this, right? Because they realize some of it. And it was interesting because the three premiers who wrote letters this week were from all three political parties, the main ones, you know, a conservative, a liberal, and an NDP premier out here in BC. And they all said essentially the same thing. And then today, you know, Doug Ford tweeted good to the reaction. And I just thought this is such low, this is such easy pickings for politicians. But the the discipline to stay out of it seems very important at this stage of the game as well. Couldn't agree more. And and, you know, I, I completely understand why somebody would lament the fact that, you know, uh, interest rates are going up and that's making housing tougher. OK, I get I completely get that. But what we had learned, which maybe we have now just recently unlearned, or at least some people have, is that there really are benefits for staying out of that. Because the, the real problem now is so, you know, Governor Tiff Macklem. And his governing council decided today that they would leave rates unchanged. If I take that at uh, at uh, at face value, I would say to myself, okay, and I've seen this process on the inside and when I was the special advisor to the governor 20 mm-hmm. years ago. And I would say, okay, they've looked at the, uh, at the uh, economic data, they've assessed what's going on, and their best assessment is that they should hold rates constant at least, you know, this time. Then the minister of finance, Christia Friedland, says – You know, she talks about the relief and clearly, clearly in her quote, the idea that it's a good thing that they didn't raise rates Mm -hmm. and, you know, and raising rates was causing problems. And immediately now she's not just the minister of finance. She is a liberal minister of finance. Okay, somebody else might make a comment from a conservative or an NDP vote. And all of a sudden I am led to wonder and I think many others are led to wonder, oh, well, was this decision by the Bank of Canada now made on the economic grounds or was there pressure pressure being put on the governor behind the scenes from the Minister of Finance? The Minister of Finance, after all, is the one that with the prime minister appoints governors of the central bank. So all of a sudden, the independence of the central bank is brought into question. And then you start, to, you know, and once once we start to question the yeah, motive, of the, the slope bank, gets slippery, the slope gets and slippery. And I think we've yeah. got ourselves a problem. And this is why I say, I, I think, frankly, I think the Minister of Finance should know better. I think the provincial premier should know better too, but it's easier for people to not believe that a provincial premier has much influence on, or any kind of undue influence on a, on a central bank governor, but a federal minister of finance of, of any minister at the federal level that should be not saying this, it would be the Minister of Finance. 
Well, Christopher Reagan, here we are. I, I know we'll be talking about this again in about a month. So thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben. Let's go to Ontario now because, I mean, there's been a huge scandal going on around Greenbelt and development. If you don't know what the Greenbelt is, this huge swath of land that was protected back in 2005, I think it's about 2 million acres, uh, protected back in 2005 by the Liberal government of the day, uh, and you can't develop on it. That's that, In a nutshell, that's what the Greenbelt is. And, uh, of course, the Ford government, when they came in, uh, he had been caught sort of, I think, before the election, when he was first elected, saying that he wouldn't touch that. Oh, yeah, he might, he might actually open this up for development. So he had to backtrack on that. Well, sure enough, he gets elected for the second time. In his first term, he doesn't do anything about it. In his second term, all of a sudden, uh, they announced that the green belt is open. Parts of it are open for development. So, And how it's done, who ends up being um, allowed or who, who, or how it's, what pieces of land are open up and who already owns them and when they were bought and sold turns into a real scandal for the Ford government. So there's now a new housing minister. The previous one resigned on Monday. There's a new one uh, now, Paul Calandra, and he came out today to say there's going to be an open and public review of the green belt and he's going to look at new measures to hold developers accountable for building homes on those pieces of green belt land that have been opened up for development. Um, and he says, the new recommendations might even see more land removed from the protected area. Have a listen. It will look at the entirety of the Greenbelt. There might be lands that uh, need to be added to the Greenbelt. There may be some uh, 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 some lands that, that are removed, but it will be a fair and open process that will uh, uh, live up to the spirit of, uh, of the original uh, uh, intent of the Greenbelt. Right. Uh, so the minister also says that the government stands behind its goal of building 1.5 million homes by 2031, but it must be done in a way that maintains public trust. And here is the issue. Everyone knows that Ontario needs more homes, right? That's a given. Where they build them, where they need to build them is an entirely different issue. So there were two reports that came out last month, one from the Auditor General, another from the Integrity Commissioner, that said that the housing minister's chief of staff at the time, he's also resigned, favored certain developers over others when selecting which lands would come out of the Greenbelt. In other words, this is about, you know, this is about access to power and friends in high places and certain people getting the nod over others uh, because they had undue influence, right? That's the accusation here. Uh, you can listen to what opposition uh, New Democrat leader uh, Marit Stiles says about all this. Here's her take. But let me tell you, he can rearrange the deck chairs all he wants, but it doesn't change the fact that Ontarians are fed up with a corrupt government rigging the system. To help, by the way, just a select few of their insider friends get even richer and at the expense of everybody else. Right. So you can see from that why this has become a bit of a political football for the Ford government on Ontario. One reporter who's been covering this from the get-go is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News in Toronto, uh, Colin DeMello, and he joins me now. Colin, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this one feels like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But for those who may not know the story of the Green Belt and what's happened under this current government, uh, this is a massive tract of land right around sort of a ring around toronto in some ways uh as much as you can ring around a country that sits on, a city that sits on the on a, on a lake um but a huge piece of land that was created by the liberals back in 2005 i think and then for a long time people vowed not to touch it for development reasons that's why it's there including the current premier and then then it changed so how, what happened they, they all of a sudden it was open for business 
Well, I mean, we are all in the middle of a housing crisis, right? Every single province, every single city is in the middle of this housing crisis. Toronto um, is certainly facing, uh, you know, a lot of it. The, the price of the average home is completely out of reach for the average family. And I think that was kind of the raison d'etre for the government, right? They wanted to make sure that they were trying to fast track the building of housing by any means necessary. And over the course of the the second mandate for this government, we started to see, and the second mandate started in June of 2020, a lot of like a, a fire hose, really, of policies that was coming out of the uh, the housing minister's file that really dealt with fast tracking the building of housing. They targeted municipalities uh, to really start to, you know, uh, dismantle um, a, a lot of the red tape as they saw it that would prevent housing from getting built faster. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, the government announced this plan. They were going to take out 7,400 acres from this protected green belt and use it for housing. And, and, you know, in Ontario politics, the green belt has become somewhat of the third rail, right? Yeah. I mean, you touch it and you will feel a shock like you've never felt before. And, and I think the government is experiencing that shock now. But in the days after opening up the green belt, a lot of people said, wait a second how did this come to be who did you consult with where where did all of this come from and there was some some really good journalism that was done by uh the toronto star and the narwhal and they mm-hmm. discovered that there was one parcel of land just north of toronto that had been purchased by a developer just days or maybe a week or so before the announcement was made public that it was going to be removed from the green belt. And all of a sudden, aha, everyone had this question in their mind. Did the developers get some kind of a heads up from the Ford government that this was happening, allowing them to go and purchase these lands just ahead of time? And that's what started this snowball effect that's led to multiple investigations. We've had investigations from the Auditor General, investigations from the Integrity Commissioner. The OPP has been sniffing around. Now the RCMP is looking uh, into this as well. I think everyone has has kind of you know is attuned to the fact that this is now an existential crisis for the premier and his government i mean the election is still far away but remember in our system a premier can be dumped by his caucus and cabinet if there's enough of an internal revolt and you know while a lot of cabinet ministers and caucus members might be sitting silent there are a lot of conservatives in the fray who feel deeply uncomfortable about what has happened here and so that's where we end up with this massive scandal that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon right and i mean i followed when the narwhal and the toronto star published those articles they were well done in depth there was lots of talk but then summer came kind of and things started to slow down a little bit as they want to do and then you mentioned them already but those two reports come out and they paint a pretty scathing picture about what about what they think has happened it's so all of a sudden there's a lot of it's not just journalism there's a lot of meat on this bone and uh, it feels like the premier has been struggling ever since to try to get ahead of this but he continues to as you mentioned he continues to go back to that housing crisis issue and it feels like that's not really the point here. Everyone accepts that. But why build on this land specifically? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, the, the, the two reports, one from the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner, gave us the kind of access that the average uh, voter would never be able to get and the average journalist would never be able to get. We have been trying at Global News to use the Freedom of Information Act system to gain as many documents as we possibly can, but the government throws up roadblocks, charges Mm -hmm. us exorbitant fees Mm -hmm. for some of these documents, Mm -hmm. and in some cases claims "Eh, they just don't exist. But the Auditor General is able to, you know, get 
the entire email server, we've heard as an example from the Ministry of Housing. The integrity commissioner was able to um, interview people under oath. It's basically, you know, a, a judicial type of process. And in doing so, what they found was this was, it seemed like, top to bottom corruption. At least that's what uh, the, the the critics of the government will will say, because the auditor general found that developers you know, not only were they given some kind of influence, they had direct access. Those developers were discussing the greenbelt lands that they wanted to see removed with the key individual who was tasked with removing these lands. He received packages from these developers with specific site plans for which ones to remove. He received USB keys with information on on what to remove. Those developers were taking uh, staff out, offering them, you know, Raptors games and offering them dinners and, and all sorts of things in order to kind of have their influence. And the Auditor General and Integrity Commissioner found the efforts worked because they were given access and then they were given the lands that were removed. And, and the net result of that is the value of those lands has increased by $8 billion. Now, you got to ask yourself, why would a politician stick their neck out that far, put their entire reputation, their entire government, and the future of their party in Ontario at risk for that decision? Remember, we live in a province in which the NDP uh, was in power between 1990 and 1995. That government was so disastrous that to this day, Ontarians don't seem to be ready to give them a second chance, right? We're talking about some 20, yeah, 25 years. I remember it well. Yes, indeed. Right. Yeah. So so why would a premier put everything, not just the present, but the future of his party at risk for what? And I think that's the question that has yet to be answered. Um, here's what we do know. In 2018, just before the, the first provincial election in which the premier was elected, he had this, you know, private meeting with people in the room who, who may or may not have been developers. And he said to them that he was going to open up parts of the Greenbelt. He said not the entire thing, but significant portions of it for development. And he said at that time that it was developers who he'd been in contact with, and they were the ones who gave him the idea. When that came to light, it was very explosive. And he promised, no, 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 I'm not going to touch the Greenbelt and stay too, true to, to that promise for the entire first year of the mandate. But in the second mandate, we learned some interesting things. In August of 2022, as an example, the premier's daughter was getting married. He held a right. stag and doe party in his backyard and the invited famous party. The famous party, developers. Yes. Yeah. He invited developers to that party who the premier later admitted were close personal friends. Developers have donated to the progressive conservatives. They've donated to the premier. Now, developers always hedge their bets, but they've donated heavily to the premier. Um, You know, within the progressive conservative framework of the party, there are developers who have significant, uh, uh, significant positions. And some of the premier's former staff, uh, those very close to him, have left his office and have since started working for developers. Um, Colin, I'm sure you saw this. I mean, I'm sure you were there today. Uh, the premier's been out a lot. You and he have been trading lots of questions. And uh, the new housing minister was out today. So they're, I guess they're trying to figure out how to put out this fire. What's your assessment of how successful they've been so far? Yeah, well, for, first things first, they are clearly doing this on the fly because the make the announcements that they've been making related to what's going to be happening in housing have not come 
with any kind of news releases or any kind of written documentation for us right. to kind of understand what the policy is. Remember, a lot of times with government, I mean, they'll announce policy and then give us what's called a backgrounder sure. so that we can kind of have a good uh, us as journalists who have to communicate what their policy is. We have a good understanding of exactly what they're doing. We've seen nothing in writing, which leads us to believe that perhaps they're kind of figuring this out as they go along. The script is being written as they're reading it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today the housing minister comes out and, you know, alarm bells are ringing with a lot of the environmentalists in Ontario because the government is saying, OK, these these parcels of land that they have removed from the green belt, they're going to reassess them. They're going to see, first of all, okay. are the developers in a position to build on them? Uh, they have to build some things related to community benefits, things like schools, uh, playgrounds, potentially community centers. That's what the government says. But if they if they can't demonstrate that they can reasonably get shovels in the ground by 2025, the government says they're going to be putting them back in the green belt. Okay. But then the province also said yesterday that they're going to do a, a wider system-wide review of the Greenbelt itself, all 2 million acres. And the premier was asked yesterday, the housing minister was asked today, at the end of that review, if you find out that there might be lands that don't belong in the Greenbelt, will you remove additional lands? And they said, yes. Wow. So in other right. words, they're going to try to leverage this into removing more, more greens, <laughs> Greenbelt land for development. Interesting. Interesting. Well, they, well, they find themselves... Um, you know, at, at a crossroads, they've given themselves two divergent paths here, right? At the end of this process, they can say, you know what, these lands, they just didn't meet the criteria, we're putting them back. But these lands meet the criteria. And so the net difference, the net result might end up being the same. Uh, but but the process and, and, you know, some of the some of the scandal over this calamity might might kind of they might be trying to walk back on. Frankly, though, man, we have no idea what they're doing here because they don't know what they're doing. They haven't really kind of given us an idea or an indication that this is uh, a functional response. This is definitely a crisis level response. And in this case, because I know you've done stories on this, I've seen them, I've seen other stories on it. As far as everyone's concerned, they do not need the green belt land for development, right? I mean, obviously the housing need is crystal clear, but this is not land that is needed for more housing. There is enough land out there to build on already. Yeah. So there's no one who disputes um, what the government is saying, that they need to build housing and they need to build housing and they need to increase inventory in order to bring the price of the average cost of a maybe a detached home down. However, um, when they first started this entire process in early 22, 2022, they had commissioned a, um, a task force to take a look at affordability. And that task force was the one that came up with that 1.5 million home figure that the government is now hanging their entire housing policy on. And the housing task force had actually said, yeah, you know what? You have the land currently to be able to build all of this housing. There's a lot of land in Ontario. A lot of it is not used. I mean, you know, downtown Toronto or parts of Toronto might be intensified, but you go outside of it to the suburbs, to areas like Brampton, as an example, which is, uh, you know, a city just uh, northwest of Toronto, and there's tons of land available. Everything is kind of, you know, pretty flat, and it looks like a lot of mm -hmm. manufacturing, and there's a lot of land available in those areas to build, uh, to build housing. So the province's own report has said, you don't need the land. There's plenty of it available. And on top of that, there's a growing problem. Municipalities have been saying that they have been approving projects as, as quickly as they can. But because of the current climate, interest rates are high, people 
can't afford their first mortgages. People can't get into the market. A lot of the developers, and not to mention that you know the cost of building is also increased. A lot of the developers have scaled back. So the permits are ready to go at municipalities, but the developers aren't coming in to actually use those permits. So that has also created another issue that the government says they're going to create some kind of a use it or lose it policy. If you get the approval, you might have a certain amount of time before you actually um, you know, have to build it. Otherwise, you lose the permit. So it's a very complicated situation that's happening here in, in Ontario. But at the heart of it, you, you've got a government that still is you know, really reaching around in the dark, trying to find their way out of this. Um, and every step of the way, people are telling them, you didn't need to do this in the first place. Right. Colin, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's go to Ottawa. Back to Ottawa now. Conservative MP and foreign affairs critic Michael Chong. He's been a guest on this show before. He spent years being very vocal about China's human rights abuses, as well as his objection to some of the intimidation and interference tactics uh, that China has carried out, Beijing has carried out in this country, uh, both in our election electoral systems and our politics more broadly. And... Um, He's been he's paid the price for that over time. And we found out earlier this year that his outspokenness on issues that made Beijing unhappy had made him the target uh, of pressure campaigns, including an attempt to silence his him by pressuring his family in Hong Kong. He was told that by CSIS, of course. Well, now the MP for Wellington, Wellington Halton Hills is going to be sharing his thoughts uh, in front of a whole different bunch of elected representatives. Chong has been invited to address the Congressional Executive Committee on China in Washington next week. It was created back in 2000. It uh, submits an annual report to the President and Congress. It consists of nine senators, nine members of the House of Representatives, and five senior administration officials appointed by the President. So it's really the Point Committee on China in America. And that's a big deal. Um, and they want to hear from a Canadian MP about what is happening in other democracies such as ours, as well as his personal experiences with being targeted by Beijing. It all comes as we continue to wait for the Trudeau government to come up with a path forward in its response to those allegations of foreign interference by China in particular. You'll remember Special Rapporteur David Johnston to go back to that story. He resigned in June, and we're still waiting for the Prime Minister to come up with the next steps. So joining me now to talk about all of this before he heads to Washington is the MP for Wellington Halton Hills and the opposition foreign affairs critic Michael Chong. Thanks, Michael. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, here we are. It's back to school already. Um, and yet uh, we don't have for a new inquiry set into uh, allegations of foreign interference. But in the meantime, you're off to the you're off to the U.S. to speak to a pretty important uh, congressional commission on China. Uh, what was the genesis of that? That's right. Um, I'm off to uh, the U.S. Congress to speak, uh, to testify in front of them about transnational repression. It all came about because of the news that had broke in Canada uh, in the last several months and internationally that uh, that I had been targeted uh, by the government in Beijing um, who sought to gather information about me and my family for further targeting in order to try to intimidate me against speaking out on uh, things like human rights abuses and other violations of international law that the government in Beijing is perpetuating both internationally and here in Canada. It's certainly rare for, for an opposition MP to be invited to, uh, to, to go to Congress to testify. What are you hoping to tell them? I, I get the impression they've looked into this deeply. I know you know their reports, uh, but what are you hoping to add to their knowledge? Well, I'm hoping that 
I'm hoping to convey that my my case is just but one of many, many cases of Beijing's transnational repression that is taking place here in Canada, that there are hundreds of Canadians, if not thousands of Canadians, who have been targeted by authoritarian regimes in recent years here in Canada on Canadian soil, uh, who have been coerced to go back to uh, authoritarian states like the PRC, who have been intimidated here in Canada against speaking up on issues like democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, uh, and to really give voice to the voiceless, really to be a voice for those Canadians here at home who've been subject uh, to these repressive tactics, but whose stories have often gone untold. So that's the first message I really hope to convey to uh, members of Congress and senators. And the second message is that really that uh, democracies need to work much more closely together in order to counter this transnational repression, that we can learn from each other as to best practices uh, in a range of issues from everything from preventing the importation of products produced using forced labor, like we're seeing in Xinjiang province with the Uyghur Muslim minority, uh, who are being forced to pick cotton and to harvest tomatoes, uh, to issues like countering disinformation and misinformation campaigns that are targeting our elections and our democratic institutions. So there's a whole range of areas in which democracies can learn from each other in, on how to counter these uh, these repressive tactics. Yeah, I mean, even on the show, we've spoken to people who are experts in this in the Australian context, who are experts on this in the British context, in the, in the New Zealand context. And it's remarkable how often, how similar the playbook is in each and every country. Uh, in the U.S. too, I suspect, when you speak out, I'm sure there are many Americans who will who will get what you're talking about. Yeah, I, that's a good example of uh, the type of stuff I'm, I'm talking about uh, in terms of cooperation amongst democracies. For example, the United States has long had a foreign agents registry in place, which they've used to to, uh, you know, to in order to to prosecute uh, agents of Beijing who've been on American soil coercing and intimidating Americans um, that foreign agents registry in the U.S. has been in place for decades. Uh, Australia, on the other hand, uh, just introduced one only a few years ago. Uh, and so I think there's different ways to approach these types of problems. Um, and so I think we can learn from the Australians and the Americans as to what works and what doesn't when it comes to uh, countering uh, Beijing's agents here in Canada. The government, uh, the Trudeau government's announced that they're, they're going to look at introducing, that they plan on introducing a foreign agent's foreign influence registry here in Canada. Um, so I think I hope that they've consulted with like-minded democracies like the U.S., like Australia, and to ensure that the model of legislation they come forward with is the best one. Uh, if, if Beijing were hoping to quiet you, um, appearing before Congress, a congressional committee, specifically this one, I'm sure Beijing pays very close attention to this one. Uh, it certainly hasn't worked. You have, have you got, given that any thought? Because this is really uh, walking into the lion or the dragon's den, so to speak. Well, I think uh, to me, Beijing's uh, sanctioning of me and other elected officials in in democracies across uh, the world, their their attempts to spread disinformation uh, and misinformation about, uh, you know, about 
our democracy only further emboldens me to speak up because it demonstrates to me that we're being effective in speaking up against these violations of international norms. You know, at the end of the day, this is such an incredibly, uh, it's so incredibly important that we stand up for the rules-based international order. At the end of the day, that's all we have. You know, that's all we have to prevent the kind of world order that we had prior to the Second World War, where every 20, 30 years, uh, because there was no rules-based international order, uh, we were subject to conflicts, major conflicts around the world. And after two exhaustive, exhaustive world wars in the first 50 years of the last century, you know, we all got together and decided that, you know, this wasn't the way to conduct world affairs. And we came up with a rules-based system, a system of international institutions that has ensured relative peace for the last eight, nine decades. Well, I think author- the rise of authoritarian states uh, and their newfound approach uh, directly undermines that rules-based international order. And I think we really have to continue to remind people what we're fighting for here. Michael, we here we are. It's post-Labor Day. And um, I, doesn't, I don't feel like we know much more about what the next steps in this whole idea of an inquiry or something into foreign interference uh, is going to be. Have you had any Have you had any inklings? They might, I, I figured maybe they would come to you before they came to people like journalists. Well, I think the government's had trouble in finding uh, in, in convincing a judge to lead an independent public inquiry because they have so botched uh, this file to this point. We all remember their first attempt to deal with this was to appoint an independent special rapporteur. Well, that, you know, ended in, in frankly, a mess. And so I think a lot of potential, good potential candidates have, have, you know, have, refuse to step up to the plate simply because um, they've seen how the government has so mishandled this uh, up to this point. So I think that's in part why we're seeing uh, a delay in, in the establishment of this inquiry. So hopefully the government has learned from its past mistakes, um, has ensured that it's going to put the resources uh, and set the terms of reference that will ensure a truly independent public inquiry where the judge has the resources and latitude to get to the bottom of who knew exactly what and when in the Trudeau government when it came to Beijing's interference right. uh, in our democratic institutions. Do you have a, uh, any thoughts on who should lead it? I know at one point there was sort of the ball was being bounced back and forth between the opposition and the government saying, well, we need to be able to agree on somebody. Uh, you pointed out why it's been so difficult to find someone else to step into what feels like a difficult position, although you think there'd be a lot of qualified uh, legal minds out there who wouldn't mind taking on this challenge. Yeah, I I think it has to be somebody who is beyond reproach and who's beyond any appearance of a conflict of interest. And I think, as you've said, there's plenty of candidates out there uh, who who meet those criteria. Uh, I think what's important is that the Trudeau government demonstrate that this time around, they're serious about an independent public inquiry. They're serious about providing the resources. And they're serious about setting in terms of reference that will get to the bottom of who knew what and when. And and timing, too, because it feels like, again, the further this is pushed down the road, the more people start talking about other stuff. And then these issues, as you well know from your many years in politics, these issues have a way of kind of fading into the background. And it feels like this one's probably far too important to allow that to happen. Yeah, I uh, I worry that that's part of the tactics here of the government, that, you know, the more they delay it, the more they hope the problem will go away. 
the reality is the problem's not going away. Uh, this has been a serious national threat, as CSIS has identified for years. Um, and so the sooner we get to the bottom of this through an independent public inquiry, the better. Uh, and I think Canadians have woken up to the fact because of the news coverage, because of the warnings from our intelligence agencies that, you know, we need to deal with this problem. So hopefully the government's heard the message. I'm sure they'll hear it again when Parliament resumes in not too, 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 uh, the not-too-too-distant future. Uh, this idea of having, you know, uh, trying to bring in interference by other countries. I know the NDP has brought it up, whether it be Iran uh, or Russia, uh, and, and, and doing that. Or do you have just one on ch- one about China and then maybe do a second one that's broader if if they're ever called? Well, regardless of the approach that is taken, whether it's just focused on foreign interference threat activities from People's Republic of China, or it's broadened to include foreign interference from other authoritarian states, uh, I think we have to be very, very clear about one thing. All the experts and intelligence agencies have told us that the vast majority of foreign interference threat activities here in Canada, 95 plus percent of these activities are coming from the government of the People's Republic of China and Beijing. Uh, And so I don't think we should conflate the issue by giving the impression that, you know, it's it's you know, that that it's equally distributed amongst a number of authoritarian states. I think we have to be clear that it is almost all of it coming from the government in Beijing. And so we need to remain focused on where the challenge is so that we can ensure that we put in place in place the proper solutions to counter this threat. Well, Michael, thank you so much, as always, for your time. Thanks for having me. The plane went down, we think, in the vicinity of 1030 last night. Uh, It took some time to locate the debris field, which we have now done. Uh, We have on scene, on the water, uh, a Canadian military Navy vessel. The HMCS Preserver is working there. We're also using two RCMP fast rescue craft, as well as uh, a number, and I'm not sure how many, Uh, local boats that are being used to ferry personnel back and forth. That was the sound of an RCMP officer providing an update on what was still a very unclear situation uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia 25 years ago this past weekend. It was the crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 that had left from JFK, was heading to Geneva, uh, when it went down just off Peggy's Cove, uh, about five nautical miles off of Peggy's Cove on the evening of September the 2nd, 1998. It remains one of the deadliest air disasters to ever happen in this country. Um, All 229 people on board were killed. Uh, The MD-11 again went off, uh, went down off the coast of Peggy's Cove. It prompted a massive response, including everyone from the Navy and the Coast Guard to members of the local fishing community and just about everyone in between. Uh, Over this past weekend, the Veterans Affairs Minister, uh, Jeanette Petsipas-Taylor, was there uh, in Nova Scotia paying tribute to all those who answered the call 25 years ago. Even after 25 years, we want, we certainly want the heartbroken families and friends to know that we still remember their loved ones, and we always, always will. And as we gather here this weekend to remember and to honour the 229 passengers and crew who died that night, we pay tribute to all of you, the brave people from the Canadian Armed Forces, the RCMP, the fire, police, and emergency services, and from the communities that were closest to the crash. 
Uh, Veterans Affairs Minister Jeanette Petsipas-Taylor last weekend in Nova Scotia paying tribute to all those uh, who responded that night uh, back on September the 2nd, 1998 to the crash of uh, Swiss Air Flight 111 and, of course, to the 229 passengers and crew on board that flight that died that day. Uh, Again, it would become one of the most complex investigations in aviation history uh, for a myriad of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons, of course, was where it happened. In, in, in water uh, and at high speed, the debris field was was huge, and it took many years for investigators to diligently piece together, piece by piece, literally two million pieces by piece, and figure out what happened, why it happened, how it could be prevented from happening again. Uh, and one of the people who watched this investigation unfold over that time was Howard Green. He's an author and consultant. Uh, at the time, he directed, wrote, and co-produced in a documentary called The Invest. Investigation of Swiss Air 111. He's also just published a piece in the Globe and Mail about that experience called Sea of Ghosts, which is a very, very in-depth and compelling read. And Howard Green joins me now. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Ben. Thank you. I know you were you were just there. You were just you spent this anniversary, 25th anniversary weekend in and around Peggy's Cove and that area that we all now so associate with this tragedy. What's it like? What's it like for you to go back? It's been such a it was such an important chapter of your career in many ways. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's multifold. I was born and raised in Halifax and so I love to go back, particularly in the summer to visit uh, family and friends and, and and take some time there because it is home. You know, it's, it's mixed in certain ways, particularly this year, and in particular being in that area of St. Margaret's Bay, which is an area that when I was a kid, my family, we used to go out there during the summer, go to the, um, the sand beaches in the area. And I have very, very warm memories of that time with my family the, the water was freezing but we loved it and it's just a it's just a beautiful beautiful bay and that that coastline is is really very very close to my heart and then of course uh 25 years ago this past saturday there was a terrible tragedy in that area swiss air flight 111 229 people on board it was traveling from New York City, JFK Airport to Geneva, and around 53 minutes into the flight, the crew noticed some smoke in the cockpit, and initially it was assessed as air conditioning related, an anomaly associated with the air conditioning system, but it wasn't. It was smoke from a fire that had started in the hidden areas of the aircraft. This was an MD-11, a McDonnell Douglas Uh, built in 1991. So the plane was seven years old. It was a relatively new aircraft and the crew was very experienced. But this occurred in, as I said, a hidden area of the aircraft in the quote-unquote attic or ceiling area above the cockpit ceiling. And it was spreading back above the ceiling rather in first class and business class Right. And it had started in association with wires from one of the first entertainment systems, in-flight entertainment systems in, in passenger aircraft. Yeah, in that first-class section, right? Yeah, first-class yeah. and business-class. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the rest of the plane because at the time, the screens made the whole aircraft 
too hot for passengers because of the, the, the heat generated by the screens. It wasn't until later when newer screens came along that they could put them in and it, they wouldn't heat up the aircraft too much. So it was just in the really the front section of the aircraft. And some wires arced associated with the in-flight entertainment system. Wires, by the way, arc very frequently in aircraft. But what made this different in large part was the fact that the fire, it caught or the, the, the insulation material that, keep, that, that keeps an aircraft a comfortable temperature, that material, the cover material on those insulation blankets had been certified previously as not flammable. But in fact, the test was not to a high enough standard. And that stuff burned like crazy. Right. In other words, they had this inferno on the plane at some point. I mean, it it caught very, uh, you know, it caught very quickly, if I remember correctly, just from your work and from other investigative work as well. Yeah, it did. And it was spreading actually aft towards the back of the aircraft from the front. But then the crew, they thought, I guess, that they had more time and they headed out to sea in order to dump fuel, which is standard procedure. Mm -hmm. And they're going through uh, a checklist for smoke of unknown origin, as it's known. And during that process of the checklist of smoke of unknown origin, that turned off recirculation fans in the ceiling of the aircraft that are unseen by passengers in the crew. And when those recirc fans stopped turning, the airflow in the attic of the plane reversed and the smoke and fire started to move forward, eventually into the cockpit ceiling or above the ceiling of the cockpit. And the cockpit ceiling eventually melted. Actually, about six minutes before impact, you know, everything kind of went to hell because the recorders, the flight flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording about six minutes before impact. The, The first indication something was terribly wrong was autopilot disconnecting. And then all the screens that the pilots had, their instrumentation screens went dark. So they're kind of flying blind. There are standby instruments, which are basic like compass and so forth. But at this point, there was probably a lot of um, smoke in the cockpit. You know, they're wearing their masks, their oxygen masks. Uh, The cockpit ceiling began to melt. It was determined that, you know, it it was dark. It wasn't a clear night. It was raining. They're heading out over the ocean. Yeah, I mean... It's we, awful. It's, it's know, awful. It is. And we, and we know what happened, of course. And, and this is where you come into this story as well, because you you took took part very early. You started to witness the investigation. And it was an incredibly complex investigation because the speed with which the aircraft hit the water was such that, it, that the, the debris field was quite large. And piecing together what happened took a very long time. And in some senses, it was the mastery of the investigators that we ever knew to tell the story that we're telling about what exactly happened to Flight 111. Uh, Howard, I mean, you got involved in this very early on as the investigation was unfolding. And uh, you witnessed firsthand just how difficult an investigation it was because of the circumstances of the crash. We have the answers today, and it seems also uh, obvious what went wrong. But at the time, people really had no idea what could have happened to this plane. That's right. It was, as you said, one of the most complex uh, aviation crash investigations ever. Look, first of all, it was underwater. It was under about 60 meters of the North Atlantic. It was in 2 million pieces 
burnt. Um, the flight recorders stopped recording, as I said, six minutes beforehand. So they had to go back to very old fashioned investigation, investigative techniques, you know, uh, but one thing that did help them is that when the plane hit the water, it froze the fire evidence in real time. Right. If the plane had crashed on land, it all would have burnt. There wouldn't have been as much to investigate. They wouldn't have been able to follow the heat patterns uh, and trace uh, the route of the fire and so forth. So amazingly, they managed to get 98% of the aircraft uh, from the sea bottom. Uh, the investigation took four and a half years. There was an incredible community effort. People went out from Peggy's Cove area and all along that south shore of Nova Scotia, uh, local people to help with the recovery, uh, the remains, um, a very gruesome situation, obviously, 229 people. This all occurred when the crash occurred in less than uh, in a third of a second or less. Uh, so you can imagine what happened to these 229 human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was it was horrid, uh, and uh, and uh, the military helped with the recovery. The RCMP was involved, but principally it was the transport. Uh, it was the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, led by Vic Gurdon, who was in charge, and his deputy Larry Vance, and, and a number of other key people. But it was actually a relatively small team, and I got to know them quite well. Over the four years, I was under a confidentiality agreement. We were doing this film with CBC, Swiss National Television, and it was also licensed by the PBS series Nova. Mm -hmm. And for um, pan-European broadcasters, it was really a global... You were really uh, impressed with the work they did, right? I mean, I remember that you you were really their their diligence was something that that you walked away with, and 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 the response of the community as well. I mean, there was the fisher, the fishing community within there that had gone out to help as well. There was sort of yeah. this community coming together to try to help preserve or find what they could, and then this team comes together and works really works their tails off for for, for many many years. They were away from home for years. You know, there were no shortcuts in this. The world was watching. Uh, the families were watching, the aircraft manufacturer, uh, the whole global aviation community. Uh, we went to the FAA to, to in a test facility in Atlantic City to do burn tests on the cover material of the insulation blankets. And we were just speechless watching all of this stuff burn. That was, of course, the principal finding. I mean, were there, I think, 23 safety recommendations by the board, but the principal one was get this stuff out of aircraft. And as a result, thousands of passenger aircraft around the world had their insulation blankets replaced. That was a huge step forward for all of us who fly. And I think we owe a debt of gratitude to this investigative team who sacrificed. I mean, they never complained. You know, this was very, very serious and, and uh, four plus years of their lives were devoted to this away from their homes and families and things go on in people's families when they're away. In one case, one of the key investigators, his son developed a brain tumor, but he was he was in that hangar in Shearwater across from Halifax for an indeterminate amount of time, couldn't get away. You know, there's great quiet sacrifice by public servants here to to do this job. And I, I have no end of admiration for the work 
they did on this. And by the way, the families felt that way about them. They would come and they would tour the hangar and Vic and Larry would give them tours. And they were not only crash detectives, they were grief counselors in a way uh, by default. And the the families came to develop a great bond with the investigative team. I did not know the forensic team, the medical forensic team, but they did incredible work identifying something of every one of the 229 victims of that crash, which is unbelievable. It is. Uh, when, you you look were... back, when you look back now at 25 years later, what are you left with? What are you left? I mean, I think there are a lot of, if you watch the documentaries, if you watch your documentary, if you watch the ones that followed, we understand the lasting legacy of the work that they did, the lasting legacy of that tragedy. Tragedy and the impact that it's had on modern aviation. But what do you, while you were so close to this investigation, saw so much of it, and here we are 25 years later, it seems like time has gone by so fast, but what do you, what's let, what's, what are you left with? Well, first of all, sorrow. Uh, a number of people reached out to me on Saturday and Sunday, and then even, you know, early this week after they read the article and uh, it kind of got me choked up all over again, you know, after we, we, uh, completed the film we had an advanced screening this is back in 2003 just before the report was released for uh, families and the investigative team at cbc in halifax I mean, a few days before it was released um, across the country very very emotional and i remember leaving the studio and walking the streets of halifax alone my hometown and i burst into tears you know uh, because i had been holding it all in and and i i'm i have to confess i got choked up again this weekend just knowing you know so many people were affected by this you know if you think of 229 people and you multiply that by the number of family members that's probably a thousand immediate family members right there not to mention friends, uh, you know, one of the, the 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 foremost AIDS researchers was on the plane. Right. He died. There were a number of people from the UN going to Geneva on that. It was a it was a horrible tragedy. And then all the people who were affected, who were involved in the recovery. But you know, um, seeing that film for those families was very important because it underlined that their family members, while they perished in a tragic way, work was done so that their lives were not lost in vain, or at least they could come to that conclusion if they wished, because they saw the tremendous amount of work done by the investigative team and the safety recommendations that came out of it. Howard Green, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for sharing that story. I know amongst the many that were very close to this, you were one of them. So thank you. Ben, thanks for having me on. Classrooms, it feels like, you know, we haven't even really figured out what to do with smartphones and cell phones in classrooms yet. And already technology has taken another leap and bound ahead of us. And as of late last year, um, or early this year, I should say, because it wasn't that long ago, uh, we now have chatbots like ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, accessible, easy to use, relatively simple to figure out, and very skilled at churning out the kind of stuff that you could technically hand in as an essay at school, right? You know, write me write me something about the Quiet Revolution. Write me something about, you know, write me something about the, the Toronto Maple Leafs Stanley Cup drought, right? You could easily put those commands into ChatGPT and it will spit out something, not always, but often, that is very coherent and very well done. 
And uh, one of my mom, my mom is a former university professor, so she was talking to one of her colleagues recently, and she was saying that she plugged in an exam that she had given to her students, and ChatGPT passed it with flying colors. And so a lot of educators out there, not to mention a lot of students, are really trying to figure out how these technologies are going to impact the classroom. Do you embrace them wholeheartedly? Do you bring them in, talk about them, figure out how to use them better, make them part of your curriculum? Or... Do you exile them? Do you get them out of the classroom because of the impact they can have? Um, the, the answer to that question is not an easy one. I mean, it's still early days yet, but from primary school to high school, right through to university admissions to coursework, AI has already and will so certainly alter the educational landscape in ways that are probably for us pretty difficult to imagine right now. As one professor I was reading put it, reading about put it, students on some level, some level are going to have access to and use AI. The big question is, how do we want to direct them knowing that it's out there and available to them? That is the question as we head in to this new school year that began for many yesterday. And joining me now to talk about this is Human Haruni. He's a lecturer on education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a former elementary and high school teacher as well. Uh, Human, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Ben. You could always tell when all the back-to-school articles come out in the media, you can sort of see what, what, the, what the conversations this year are going to be around. Affordability is clearly one of them. But AI and ChatGPT specifically, uh, there's been a lot talked about. That this is obviously something that's front of mind for a lot of people in education these days as this new school year begins. Yes, and it's becoming, uh, like whenever you have a new technology, you get some divided opinions about it. So you have kind of a majority in the education world that are going around and saying, uh, we need to use uh, AI in every aspect. This is a game changer. Here is a new app. Here's a new uh, process for teachers and students, et cetera. Really optimistic stuff. Like when uh, cell phones first came out and you know people wanted to put a cell phone in every, uh, in every kid's hand, which didn't turn out so well. Uh, later on, we found out. No. And then you have people who are uh, quite skeptical and they're wondering, what does this mean for education? What does it mean sometimes even for humanity? There used to be a time that if you saw something written, you thought, well, I know that there's a human being or at least a few human beings behind this. There's some accountability. It can relate to somebody's personhood. And now you will have no idea anymore. Uh, in education, one of the big discussions is you really don't know anymore if a work that has been produced by a student or has it been produced uh, by AI, by something like ChatGPT that can really mimic uh, the human voice. And if you are good at using it, and it doesn't take much to get uh, good at it, actually, you can create things that really sound like they were uh, done by you actually by a very specific human being and then there are people who yeah. uh, haven't spent any time looking at it they haven't uh, they haven't had the time or the inclination to understand to understand it and play with it so lots of messages going around lots of different messages that people are exposed to now there certainly are one of them that that always strikes me is this sort of from what I've heard from people I know in the education field, is sort of a combination of one and two. There's this idea of embracing it, but also this fear of how do you embrace it? Because you're right, it, it does call up that that ever-present question, who wrote this? 
and how did they and did they do the work did they do the work that I wanted them to do to make this whole process of handing in this assignment uh worthwhile right I mean I guess that's what it boils down to is were they educated through this and it's a, it's a tough one to answer it's very difficult and nobody has a good answer for it though a lot of people can like me um academics and you know uh, tech people are going around pretending like they know um, when you really talk to people in higher education or in classrooms, they are confused and rightly so. We really don't know what to do. And this is something that happens every time there is a major technological breakthrough. Remember, the, those of you who remember the internet, uh, when it, the time before yes. the internet, I mean, uh, you will know that when it first came out, all of these questions existed. There are some things that we have we have an idea of. We know at this point, um, asking students to produce a written assignment at home, you basically will no longer know if they did it or they just asked some uh, smart questions. Um, any kind of assignment. Some people are thinking, let's go back to oral exams. Some people think, let's go back to the time where we had students write uh, everything in the classroom. And you know, this is not just uh, about writing. This is math. It can do math really well. It can code computers mm -hmm. really well at a very high level. Uh, I know professional coders who are using it very regularly for some, you know, high stakes projects. So there isn't there isn't a great solution out there, and there won't be. It will be just like the internet, a matter of debate, and it's going to take a while to get used to it. The question is, we as individuals, and then we as a society. How informed do you want to be? Do we want to be about this? How much do we want to understand it? How much control would you would be like to have? And my hope is that people will spend time trying to understand what this new thing is. Otherwise, we're going to cede control to to the companies really uh, that are using this to just create shinier and shinier apps. Kumar Haruni is with us this half hour. He's a lecturer on education at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We're talking about ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, and the classroom. It's much talked about uh, heading into this school year, the first really full school year where these technologies are so readily available and people have been talking about them so much. Kumar, you made an interesting point in an article you wrote about this saying, first of all, part of it's learning, right? I mean, the idea that if ChatGPT can do the work for you, easily, then you probably haven't structured your quiz, for instance, in a way that is really, I mean, it's getting rid of that idea of rote, right? ChatGPT is great at rote, and it's great at sort of taking fairly simple stuff and, and regurgitating it, as you pointed out. So in some ways, it's up to educators to figure out how to incorporate ChatGPT into the, or AI period, into their lesson plan uh, to allow the kids to learn so that what they're learning is actually the step that, as you pointed out, ChatGPT can't answer. You know, ChatGPT is getting better and better. Even ever, even uh, since I published that article, it has gotten better uh, at uh, at doing its work, at answering questions. One thing it's not really good at uh, right now is asking questions of itself. Really, an idea of AI literacy is comes down to this one simple idea: How do you ask questions? Where do you go? Once you have asked the first question, where do you go to deepen uh, your knowledge? What is the second question you ask? What is the third question you ask? So a lot of the work of schooling in the time to come is probably going to turn towards 
getting kids to ask better questions, more detailed questions, because there is no way the kids are going to uh, ignore this uh, this new technology. That one is really important. And that's something that people have been talking about in education for decades. Uh, let's kids to you know, you know do inquiry-based uh, learning. Let's get them to ask important questions of the world, et cetera. But where we are going is a place where the part where it comes to answers, uh, providing good answers is really no longer important. What's important is how do you evaluate an answer? And that's already been provided for, uh, for you by, uh, by the machine. I can give yeah, you a really it's disturbing a, example of this. Sure. Yeah. So a little while ago, it was a bit of a scandal because Vanderbilt University here in the U.S., uh, the administrators were trying to send out, they were trying to send out an email to their student body uh, tell, commiserating with them about a shooting that happened in another university, I believe Michigan State. So it's a heavy topic, and it's something that really requires a human touch to write one of these uh, emails and telling people, you know, we're with you, we understand that a lot of you are worried, um, there are resources for you, etc. Well, what happened was uh, whoever was sending out the email gave the task to ChatGPT, uh, copy-pasted it onto the email, but forgot to erase a little line at the bottom that said, this answer is created by ChatGPT. So imagine right. people getting this email that's supposed to be very you know, human-centered and uh, about care, et cetera, and it's written by an AI. Big scandal. And uh, the school, of course, uh, issued an apology, and you know said we shouldn't we shouldn't really have done this, etc. First part that's really disturbing is that the email that came from um, that was created by the AI was as good, accurate, and kind of by the book as anything um, I have seen come out of uh, the school administrations. Same kind of like really legalese, like lots of euphemisms, you know, we're there for you. I don't feel alone. Yes. It had it all. It had it had gotten all of that right. People were scandalized by that and scared. But what's really, you know, what I found interesting was that the apology from Vanderbilt read something like this. While we believe in the message of inclusivity expressed in the email, using ChatGPT to generate communications on behalf of our community in a time of sorrow and in response to a tragedy contradicts the values that characterize uh, our college. And et cetera. And we are going to, it says we're going to learn, we're going to uh, try to understand better and we apologize. I took the situation, I described the situation to ChatGPT. I said, pretend that something has happened like this that I just described. And you need to write an apology email. And ChatGPT wrote an apology email. And I will tell you that it was almost verbatim the same. I'm sure. Yes, that says, that says a lot more about form about form letters, I think, unfortunately. But but absolutely, I get the point. I suppose what, what's difficult here is that, you know, in all industries now, people are forced to try to keep continuing to educate themselves all the time. And that, of course, applies to teachers. They Every educator knows this. But this just adds another layer, right? Educators are going to have to figure out how how to use chat to be GPT or, and incorporate it into the classroom experience, regardless of how old the kids are. Because as you point out correctly, they can't pretend it's not there. And, and they simply can't. And, and that's going to be, I think, going to become 
more and more obvious, uh, you know, this year and next and so on and so on. We can't pretend it's not there. We also can't pretend that it's not going to uh, really change us and we that, and we have to get ready for it. Um, many, many people in these jobs that they call sort of cognitive jobs, like people in these white collar jobs, uh, they're going to be in trouble. Um, people who wrote those form letters, a lot of people who are analysts and, you know, write little things here and there. Um, many people are are going to be made redundant by this. But there is one thing, and this is good news for the teachers. No matter what you read in the in the papers, um, teachers are not going to be made redundant. And the reason for it is that teachers are not their job is not just to ask good questions and provide good texts and give good answers to students. Their job is to be a human being for another human being. The reason ChatGPT wrote those emails so well is because it is fed on a ton of letters like that. It has seen them on the internet. It knows exactly what they're supposed to sound like. And what they don't sound like anymore is human. But when a teacher is with a kid and is sitting with them and can talk to them about their confusion, about uh, maybe feeling lonely, maybe feeling uh, like uh, they do belong or they don't belong or feeling competitive, all of those things, Those things, no matter how smart this tool is, is not going to be able to do it because you just need a human being uh, to be with you to get the feeling that you're being understood. Human Haruni, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Before we start this interview, and I'm not going to keep Evan Dunphy waiting for long, but I want to share a story with you that sort of relates to what Evan does and why I have so much respect for what he does as an athlete. Many years ago, uh, my university roommate was, his father was Ecuadorian, and he had a great love of things Ecuadorian. So we used to traipse all over the place to go see soccer matches being played at strange times and strange parts of the cities and strange tournaments. And in 1996, Ecuador won its first gold medal at the Olympics. And that gold medal belonged to a guy named Jefferson Perez, who was a race walker and a great race walker at that. So in 1996 in Atlanta, he wins gold. He was the youngest ever Olympic race walk champion. He ended up winning. uh, He won silver, I think, in Beijing many years later. But this gold in Atlanta was a huge deal in Ecuador. And my friend, who sadly has since passed away, so I often think of him when talking about, about when, even when rot- watching race walking, oddly enough, um, I often think of Jefferson Perez and his first gold medal uh, in Atlanta, if I'm getting this all right, if my memory serves me correctly. And it was such a big deal for him that every time race walking would come on, I would watch it because we had watched it in 96. So over the years, there have been many other great race walkers out there. And one of the great ones now is a Canadian named Evan Dunphy. He's won gold at the Commonwealth Games. He did that in Birmingham last year. He's won bronze at both the World Athletic Championships back in Doha in 2019 and the most recent Summer Games in Tokyo and came very close, uh, finishing fourth in Rio in 2016. And then at the most recent uh, World Track and Field Championships in Budapest, you may have watched. There was lots of Canadians doing well there, including Evan, who uh, finished unfortunately fourth twice, twice, including the latter of his two races on what appears to have been a torn hamstring so it's a great pleasure to welcome evan to the show tonight evan thanks so much yeah thanks for having me thank you for that story it's uh that's such a such a nice story to hear and hear race walking talked about in such a positive uh with such positive fond memories is uh is, is really really heartening 
Yeah, I mean, I really did. I mean, I don't. I didn't think I knew much about it. I think when I was young, it was something you know you didn't. You maybe watched it if it was on. Uh, you know, it's always been a obviously a, it, it's a sport that you can't sort of walk out and do yourself, right? You can run and jump and pretend, but it's hard to get the race walking trot down. How did you get interested in in this sport? I uh, so I started race walking when I was ten years old. I was, uh, if you can picture it, I was the shortest kid in the class. I had this red curly hair, these big, thick rim glasses. Uh, I wore shorts that were too short, socks that were too long. And I was kind of the quintessentially picked on kid. And, uh, and I wanted to be good at something. I wanted to prove myself uh, to those other kids and, and be the best at something. And I wasn't very good in school. And I tried all these other sports. But when you're trying playing ball sports and you're not super coordinated and you've got big, thick glasses, uh, it's a recipe for getting hit in the face with a lot of different balls and breaking a lot of glasses. And um, so I started running. I started started running laps in my field um, in elementary school. Uh, at lunchtime, they had a little popsicle stick run, and you got a popsicle stick for every lap of the field you ran. And um, there was nothing to hit me in the face, and, and so I quite enjoyed that and, and really thrived with it. found out that I had all this endurance and I could keep going and going forever. And uh, and then just serendipitously fell into this race walking thing because my brother, who was in high school at the time, had his appendix taken out. And while he was recovering from the surgery, his high school coach suggested race walking to stay fit and not pull on the stitches. And the you know, older brother won a medal in his first race. And as a younger brother, I sort of naively thought, well, if he can do it, it's got to be pretty easy. And, uh, and so I went and gave it a try and, and never looked back. Yeah, and you had some early success too. I mean, I'm looking, just trying to figure out the dates, but by the time you were like 16, 17, you were already winning World Junior Youth. You were competing in World Youth, uh, Junior Youth Championships and Pan American Championships and so on and doing you know, by by finishing top 10 by 2009. Yeah, I, I mean, it was from from the time I was 10, 11 years old, I, I knew that I wanted to uh, be the best. I was always asking. I, I wanted to be the best in the world, and my dad coached at the Olympics. As a, he was a swim coach, and he coached at the Olympics in Munich in '72. And so I, I grew up just hearing stories about sex. And it was a thing that was normalized. And I was told of like, yeah, sure, if that's the thing you want to do, you know, we're here to support you. Nothing, you know, there's nothing to stop you. And so from a really, really early age, uh, that idea of one day going to the Olympics was kind of cemented in in my psyche and, and in my sort of dreams and goals. Wow. Uh, and, and you did, of course, by, by 2016, you're, you're in Rio. I, mean, I remember watching you in that, what is now a very famous race, right, given all that happened. But it, it's such a group. I mean, I think I remember what's, what race, what, what Olympics I was watching. Maybe it was the most recent one. It's such a, the 50-kilometer at least, which is no longer raced at the Olympics, but what a grueling, grueling sport. And sometimes people see race walking and think, oh, well, that must be, relatively straightforward compared to say a marathon or the decathlon uh but it isn't at all is it it looks i mean I, the people the amount of athletes that don't finish is is remarkable yeah i i, I mean i love the 50k I, i'm really sad to have seen it been taken out of the olympics um you know, i'll defend to anyone who's willing to listen all the merits <laughs> it has but I, I think you know i think more than anything it, it defined what it means to endure better than any other event at the Olymp- that, that, that's in the Olympics. Um, and, and you see that in the faces of the athletes competing. And, and it's, it, it was less about beating your competitors and more about conquering the distance. 
And so you all sort of had this, even though you were trying to be faster than the guy next to you, you all sort of had this same kind of goal of, of beating this distance that can be so unforgiving. You know, if you don't get your fueling right and your nutrition right, if you miss your hydration a little bit, if you, if you don't stay cool and you overheat and, and there's so many different variables that can just make you feel great. You could be feeling great one minute and literally a kilometer later, you could be on the side of the road um, with, with your day done. And so um, I love that challenge. I loved what it, what it represented. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it was so much fun to get to do it at, at two Olympic games. Yeah. And you, and you made the podium in the last ones, which has been, I mean, just thinking back to your dad and talking about going to the Olympics and that being the dream. And even though, I mean, you've, you know, obviously Rio was, was a success, uh, but, but being able to climb the podium and having to wait the extra year and finishing on the podium in Tokyo must've been a huge thrill. It's fascinating. You know, it's such a great cap to that sort of 20 year dream to that point of, you know, when I started sport, when I was trying to prove myself to my bullies and, and those kids that picked on me, like I was the kid that defined success as, as winning. You know, I was very, if you win, you're successful. If you lose, you failed. And I was very wrong, but very strong headed in that, in that mentality. And, and really, you know, I owe it to, to some amazing coaches and, and my, my race walking coach, Jerry Dragomir, who really helped me over the years understand that you know it's actually that pursuit of of that dream of it's the pursuit of wanting to achieve that that medal that that standing on the podium like that is how we define success not the outcome and so in rio finishing so close to the podium finishing in fourth place and obviously having had that opportunity to uh, maybe appeal for a chance to stand on the podium and choosing not to that really showed me how far I'd come in sport and, and how, you know, how much I changed my mentality. And then in Tokyo to get that chance with moving into third place with a hundred meters to go and, and achieving that childhood dream yeah. uh, was really just the icing on the cake at that point. And, and now I get to go to all these schools and, and when I talk to kids, I have something tangible to put in their hands and say, Hey, like when I was your age sitting on the, sitting on the school, on the school gymnasium floor, this is what I dreamt of doing and look, I achieved it and you can hold that. And so what's stopping you from achieving whatever your dream is. And, and that's the, that's the coolest part about the medal now is having that tangible thing that can sort of be a prop you know, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, we had Pierce Lepage on the show last week, and I think he stopped athletics altogether when he was in high school, but he's 6'8", right? I mean, he's and just the idea that, you know, you athletes come in all sizes and shapes is such a, such a, a great message, I think. Yeah, and you mentioned Jefferson Perez, and and yeah. you know he was five foot, like five foot seven, but he took two hundred and twenty steps a minute. Yeah. Uh, you imagine taking yeah. nearly four steps a second and just having that incredible cadence, and 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 you know the being able to win Ecuador's first ever Olympic medal and Guatemala's first ever Olympic medal right. um, has, came in race walking as well, and and so it, it's really the sport that is open to all corners of the world, which I think is is incredibly. Um, amazing about it as well and and you know all you need is a pair of shoes 
Yes, and, and well, I mean, yeah, I've tried it. I can't. I can't get the gate at all. I mean, I think it, it, it's, it takes a lot more coordination and a lot more rhythm than than anyone ever gives it credit for. In fact, it's quite painful if you don't know how to do it properly. But I guess I'd have to get some coaching. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe a pair of shoes and some patience. <laughs> There you go. Tell me a bit about, because this came up and you've talked about this already. So you finished fourth in the 20K in uh, just now in Budapest and then again in the 35K. I gather you, you hurt yourself in the 35K and then something flashed about having finished fourth, the most fourth place finishes at the Olympics and the World Championships together. And you're quite sanguine about it. And it speaks a lot to what you were just talking about, which is you grow in your sport too, that it's not necessarily all about winning. Winning is great. Um, but but it is also just about competing and doing your and you know doing yourself well on that day. Definitely, definitely, and I think you also have to find the positives in, in everything. I mean, obviously, I'd love for those two races to have been podium finishes, but um, I, I can't change the result now. And so it's about finding the positives that keep me motivated and keep me hungry for um, you know trying to reach my potential uh, next year and, and beyond. Right, because because next year is another big year. We have we have Paris coming up. How are you feeling? How is that? How is the hamstring? It's it's actually it's really really positive. Um, okay. Saw my physio yesterday, and and the, our initial prognosis might have been a little too uh, uh, too swift, and and things look a lot better than we initially thought. So um, that's that's leaving me with a lot of confidence right now and a lot of positivity. And yeah, I mean we're heading into another olympics it feels like it was just yesterday that that tokyo yeah. is here but tomorrow paris is here so um i'm really excited i last year i think my motivation was pretty low um losing the 50k from the olympics i think i was kind of feeling a little bit lost and and struggled and then but but now having those two fourth place finishes showing i can still compete over the shorter 20k distance um i'm hungry and i'm motivated and I, i'm just really excited uh, that sort of that sort of answers my next question, but I was going to ask what you do on your downtime because clearly, you know, the rest of us are sort of obsessed with did I get my ten thousand steps in today, right? <laughs> and I, I guess that stuff. I don't imagine you wear a Fitbit, but or maybe you do. Uh, but what do you do I, when I you're, have all, when you're all down? the data? Yeah, you have all the data. I'm sure you do. Yeah. What do you do on your downtime? Like, how do you how do you allow yourself to relax a bit, considering how grueling uh, the sport you're involved in is? Well, yeah, I recently, so right now I, I've actually gone, I'm going back to school. So I'm doing a certificate in business at, uh, through, through Queens University, which is a, oh, uh, through a program supported by a game plan, which helps, helps athletes kind of figure out what their life looks like after sport. And so that's, that's exciting, you know, going back to school for the first time in 10 years. And um, I'm coaching, I'm doing some coaching now as well with the University of British Columbia race walkers. So Lots to keep me busy, and um, I'm my biggest passion outside of track and field and outside of sport is sort of city building and, and how we can, you know, create cities that allow people to thrive. I, I ran for city council in, in my hometown of Richmond mm -hmm. last uh, October and narrowly, narrowly missed getting elected. And so, you know, I spend a lot of free time reading staff reports and watching council meetings. And, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, I've done that. Yeah. Things, things that I feel very few people would refer to as fun, but um, but it's what I love. Yeah, and and just I, I asked this question as well: Is there anything about race walking that that always surprises people when you tell them a certain facet of it that people just don't get until you actually explain it? I, I think the speed. I think like seeing how fast you go. I think the you know one of the most fun things I get to do is I'll go and you know I'll race walk the Sun Run in Vancouver or or our local half marathons and marathons. And 
that's when you really get to sort of you're beside people running and you're beside people who run every day and train for these for these races and, and I'm there walking next to them. And, um, you know, the amount of people that will uh, swear obscenities at me in, in surprise of, of how do you do that or or people that will come up to me after and say, Hey, you know, like you passed me and I was really struggling, but I didn't want to lose to the race walker. And, um, so I just tried to you know, stay on, stay on your back. And I, I ran a personal best today. And, you know, that's the best compliment I could ever receive is hearing people say like, you know, you out of spite, I ran faster than I've ever run before. Cause I didn't want to lose to the guy who was walking. Yeah, um, is, is it so like a four minute, a four minute kilometer, even faster than that? Yeah, so my my twenty k in uh, Budapest there was averaging about yeah about thirty nine minutes uh, for back to back ten k's. Oh wow, <laughs> that is incredibly fast, Evan. Uh, best of luck. I'm I'm glad to hear the injury is not not as severe as you thought it was. We look forward to seeing you in Paris and before. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking the time.